that's why. Uh, there's a situation that often frustrates me. I'll be downstairs working on a bike, my bikes are fixing something in the house, and I'll realize that I need a new tool. And I'll walk up the stairs and go up to my room, because there's another closet where I know that there's some gadgets. So I'll go in there, and once I get there, I'll be like, why did I come up here again? I don't know if it happens to you. Uh, it doesn't have to be fixing bikes, but it could be happening at work or as you're cooking in the kitchen or, uh, or just moving from one room to another. You, you realize that what you're looking for is actually you've been holding on to it the whole time. That's even more frustrating, right? I hate it when it happens to me because it reminds me of how old I'm getting. But my problem is that I've experienced it my whole life. Fortunately, I was relieved to discover this week that psychologists have an explanation for this uh, phenomenon. It's called the doorway effect. It's a tendency for us to forget things when we pass from one room into another. It's, there's this, something that happens in our brain. When people pass through doorways, they experience a divide in their memory. A doorway isn't just a physical threshold between rooms, but it's crossing a threshold that serves as a demarcation in the way we experience the world at that moment and what we can recall. We're starting off a new sermon series, as Jerry reminded us earlier in the service, called Thrive. That looks at how we can flourish and thrive in this world and to thrive and flourish for the world's benefits. And the goal behind this series is to help WCF re-envision what our faith community can do to be a blessing to the wider community around us. We're going to journey through the book of Acts over these next two months and to see how this early church shifted from primarily a Jewish sect to be a movement that went around the whole world. This series is a complement to these catalyst groups that we're starting. And if you're not part of one and you'd like to be, we'll, we'll be, gladly help you get connected to one. Uh, well, you'll meet like four times in the next two months. And we also have a church retreat at the end of the month that will kind of complement this as well. These are additional spaces for us to explore what it means to reach beyond the threshold of what we have known and what we have been doing. In today's passage, I want to explore these places of liminality found in Acts, but also found in our lives. What does it look like in our day, in our time, when we begin to share the name of Jesus across thresholds and what some call, scholars call liminal spaces? Now, you might be asking, what does this word liminal mean? Liminal comes from the Latin word limen, which literally means threshold. A liminal space is this threshold of where you have been and what's happening next. It's a place of transition or possibly a place of transformation. If you pay attention, this scene is actually a confluence of liminal spaces. There's the religious practices of the Jews and going to the temple and this very visible need of the crippled man. There's the beauty of this temple is considered the gate beautiful, the most beautiful gate in the city and the very brokenness of this young man, or of this, of this man. We don't know how we hold these. There's the financial needs of this man. He's asking for money versus the well-being of his entire life that he's hoping for. And you have Peter and John depending on God versus this lame, uh, crippled man begging and depending on others. In today's message, I want us to pay attention to three specific thresholds, though. The threshold of religious and irreligious, the threshold of 
being up and in and the threshold uh, and and being down and out and the threshold of the kingdom of God and the world around us. We're constantly crossing these thresholds as we live our lives. But what what do we often forget what it is that God calls us to do in each of them? Peter and John were the leaders of this new Jesus movement. They were faithful Jews, devout in their religious practices. In the chapter immediately preceding, chapter 3, we're told that they regularly met in the temple. And here in verse 1, we're told they come to the temple daily for times of prayer. In this case, it was the 3 o'clock prayer, which uh, coincided with the evening sacrifice for the day. And we also see that the temple is a place of teaching, which is what Paul, uh, Peter does right after the healing of this man. For Jews, these routines to express their faith centered around this temple. But life has changed with the arrival and with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Peter and John continue to practice their Jewish faith. But today, they find their religious routine is interrupted when they encounter this crippled man along the way. It's likely that they may have seen him before, but they see him differently today. We often think of religion as an organized faith and a belief system. Perhaps a broader definition of religion could be this. Religion is a set of routines and practices that help us order and prioritize meaning in our lives. You don't have to adhere to a particular religion to be religious. You can be religious about your health and your image. You can be religious about your finances. You can be religious about your scheduling and orderliness in your lives. These all involve some routines and practices that we pay more attention to and prioritize because they make meaning for us. They provide an identity for us, and we put our trust in those routines. Peter and John here interact and demonstrate how we might respond to these liminal places where life circumstances and people begin to confront our religious practices. When things don't fit in to our paradigms of meaning and value, how do we respond? Some may struggle with clinical conditions like obsessive compulsive disorder, but I think for many of us who struggle when situations confront our routines and we're unsettled, we can be unwilling to acknowledge how our religion, whatever it is, whether it's a formalized thing or whether it's instinctive, may not accommodate a life experience that doesn't fit within our religion's boundaries. We can respond in three ways. One is simply to ignore what's going on around us. We dig deeper into our religious practice and ignore what challenges us in hopes that we draw near to God or attain to whatever goal we're trying to attain to. Or even worse than digging in, we completely demonize those who don't fit within our tribes and within our religious practices. Second thing we can do is just accommodate. We embrace every new encounter with the possibility of losing our distinctiveness. A third way we can do is engage meaningfully. Peter and John here choose to engage with this crippled man. Though the crippled man here is not part of their religious tradition, they stop and they pay attention to this man. There's another liminal space happening here 
when the man is healed instantly. The moment Peter takes his hand, the power of God comes upon this crippled man, and instead of being carried by others every day to the gate, beautiful, he is carried by the power of the Holy Spirit to a new place of health for the rest of his life. Strength returns to his muscles and to his bones and to his joints and to his ligaments. And this liminal space is where religious meets the irreligious and where the supernatural, at least supernatural to us, meets the natural. God's Spirit is constantly working around us if we're willing to pay attention as we cross those thresholds. I love being at the beach. This is a picture, I think, of us in San Diego approaching the, the, the wall, actually. The wall's over there on the, on the right. If you've ever gone for a run or a walk on the beach, you'll notice this band of sand on the beach where it's easiest to walk. On one side is the soft, dry sand, right? But walking on the loose sand or running on the loose sand drains your energy. That's why people just want to lie on the beach and bathe in the sun, because it's so tiring to get there. But on the other side is the water, right? If you walk too far in that, you go ankle deep, waist deep, and you're wet, which is fine sometimes when you want to, but not always. But between the beach and the ocean is this band of sand. And this band of sand is darker, and it's harder packed, where the water has recently lapped onto the shore. And this band of hard-packed sand is constantly changing, though. Depending on the time of day, depending on the tides and the winds, and how far the ocean comes up onto shore. Peter and John's encounter with the crippled beggar is like walking on this sometimes narrow, this in this case is quite wide, band of sand. Where between religion and irreligion, between God's kingdom and the world around us, and walking forward into life with God. And God invites us to not be so caught up in our religious acts of the past and perhaps of the present that we fail to miss out on what God is working in, in, where God is working in the lives of people around us. This leads us to another liminal space, a threshold demonstrated in the scene. Peter and John are the ups and ins, at least when it comes to this new movement of Jewish faith focused on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They had been discipled with Jesus, by Jesus. They had seen God's faithfulness at work in Jesus' ministry. And most recently, with this gift of God's Spirit poured out on Jesus' people, these new followers of Jesus, they were seeing a great move of God. And on their way to the temple, what they did every day, they meet this beggar who's lived the only way he's ever known how to live for his entire life. We're told that he's been crippled since he was born. He's dependent for his entire life on the mercy of people around him. Every day he depended on friends. Well, actually, maybe it's not even his friends because the text says in verse 2, now a man who was lame was carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. You know, the text seems to imply that people simply put him there. It's told in the passive voice. There was no relationship. There's no sense of dignity. All he had to depend on was catching the eye of those passing by, if they would look at him. For his entire life, he had been seen as less than, 
and he leveraged whatever he could just to survive. Those who were up and in in this Jewish faith seemed to simply tolerate his presence, not knowing what to do with this crippled beggar. There was no Medicaid, there's no social security, there was no social worker to be his advocate. All he could do was be carried to the temple to ask others for money. But Peter and John can't answer his request. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright comments on this text, and he says this, Peter and John offered something new. Money stopped being the most important thing for them. They had a new quality of life, a new kind of power. Peter didn't have any money. He had something better, a life with the resurrected Jesus. Peter, one of the up and ins of the kingdom of God, sees someone down and out, not only in life, but also down and out from the kingdom of God. And Peter sees this man and simply welcomes him into this life that Peter came to know. If you pay attention, notice that Peter doesn't actually ask the man if he wants to be healed, like sometimes Jesus did in other healing um, pictures. He simply reaches out, and takes the beggar's hand, and says, be healed in Jesus' name. His feet and his ankles instantly become strong, and the man stands up. As amazing as this healing is for the beggar, I don't think the physical healing is the point of the scene. I think it's about restoring dignity and meaning to this man's life in Jesus' name. It's the kind of life that God has intended for every human being. It's about thriving in God's life, not just surviving on the fringes. Look at the impact of this healing on this man. In verse 8 and 9, we're told, he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they were filled with wonder and amazement. By the power of God, this man was not only healed of his physical condition, but he was able to participate in the life of the community. Look at that. He went with them into the temple courts. For his entire life, he's sitting outside the temple courts, hoping to catch an eye of someone passing by. Now he gets to go in. Being inside wasn't just entering a religious building, though. This response suggests that he enters into the same life with God that Peter and John and others in the early church experienced. For the first time in this man's life, he is not merely seen as the crippled beggar to pass by on the way to the temple, but he is seen as part of the community. He is recognized, and he's able to participate in the community. What would it look like if we were able to pause and see those on the down and out, not just in life, but in the kingdom of God, and welcome them to participate with the ups and ins in the kingdom? What liminal places could you be bypassing because you're focused on your religious practices and routines? Maybe your personal spirituality or staying on course to be up and in the world. We can be caught up in the religion of our busy lives that we don't have margins to pay attention to these liminal spaces that God brings us through. I'm not just preaching to you because I'm preaching to myself. I've got things to do. I've got people to see. 
And this text is a challenge for me to pay attention to those moments, those liminal spaces where God just might be inviting me to join him in welcoming something, someone in. How often do we pass by someone who is considered down and out? Down and out, people don't have to be homeless and crippled. They can be down and out from medical conditions. They can be down and out from mental health concerns. They can be down and out because of a strained relationship or a relationship that they want to be in. God invites us who are up and in because of Jesus to stretch out our hands to join him in inviting those who are down and out around us. The last threshold I want to explore is this of God's kingdom and the world around us. Yes, this beggar leaps to his feet into health and into community, but he also leaps into a new life under God's reign. In, th- in verse 8, the, the Greek word for leaping and jumping is halomai. And this Greek word is rarely used. In fact, it's only used once in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's found in this verse in Isaiah 35, verse 6. And in this passage, Isaiah is proclaiming a day when God's reign will come. What, you know, theologian will call the messianic age. A time when God's reign on earth is evident. And it's pictures like this. Then the lame shall the lame man walk, a lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's happening. The lame man's walking. This is a time where God's reign has come when, in Peter and John in this part of Acts. These are images of what it looks like when God's kingdom breaks into our world. Last week, I returned to the Museum of African American History and discovered this pleasant surprise at the end of it. There's a beautiful contemplation room. If, you have, if you've been there, I don't know if you've been into that room. I, we, I didn't know it was there. At the end of the gallery, we heard the staff member says, make sure you go into this room. It's called the contemplation room. And on that, in that room, there's this beautiful waterfall and four walls. And on one of the walls is a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. And I think this quote helps us envision what those waters and those streams that Isaiah is describing in this verse. It says, it's kind of hidden, but it's behind the stream of water. It says, we are determined to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Until justice runs like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. In our city and in our neighborhoods, what are places that catch our attention where God's reign is not fully evident? Where is justice not running like water for everyone? Where is righteousness not running like a mighty stream? for everyone. In other words, where are people not thriving? Maybe it's in the city's public housing that is underfunded and in constant need of maintenance, so residents find themselves living in decrepit buildings. Maybe it's in certain demographic of teenagers and young men losing their lives to gun violence, but because they live across the river, it's out of sight and out of mind. This week I was introduced to a new ministry to teenage moms in the city. And as I heard uh, this woman share about the ministry, I was like, wow, I wonder if this is an opportunity for WCF to share its gift of relationship, of family, of 
children and caring for children with, and sharing what God's kingdom looks like with these young moms. There's another thing that moved me. I was really angry this week. Hopefully it's toned down now as I tell you. There's racial disparity in the justice system, particularly highlighted in the sentencing of the Dallas, former Dallas police officer, Amber Geiger, this week. She was returning home. If you haven't heard the story, she was returning home from work and went into an apartment and found Botham uh, Jean, an African-American man, in that apartment, and she thought she was in her apartment, so she unloaded two rounds into his chest, killing him. Turns out she had walked into his apartment by mistake, and he was sitting, watching TV, having a bowl of ice cream. Can you imagine if the tables were turned? She got off with 10 years, she was sentenced for murder, 10 years, with the earliest chance of parole in five years. Imagine if the tables were turned, if it was a black man walking into a white woman's apartment doing the same thing. Many people have been moved by Botham Jean's 18-year-old brother, Brant, who gave a moving victim impact statement to Miss Geiger. It sounds like the two of them, their family, are followers of Jesus. And he was able to say, I, ex- I-, I extend forgiveness, I forgive you. And he invited her to trust in Jesus. And he even offered a hug to her. And that's been shared virally. That's a beautiful demonstration of forgiveness and love that comes not only from knowing God's love and forgiveness in Christ. But I don't think equal attention has been paid to what Botham Jean's mother said after the sentence. She challenged the corruption and the injustice of the police investigation. She challenged the poor training of the police officers and our country's laws that discriminate against people of color. She demanded that things need to change. Her challenge, too, is just as much a reflection of Jesus' name that needs to be heard in our world around us. Here, justice is not running like water for everyone. Here, streams of righteousness are not flowing mightily for everyone. Jesus' name isn't something to be invoked just to make us feel better about ourselves. Jesus' name has a power to not only heal individuals, but Jesus' name is powerful enough to change societies and powers and authorities. And he invites us to do the same. It is through the power of Jesus' name that Peter brings physical healing to this crippled man when he says, in Jesus' name, rise up and walk. And when he's explaining in verse 16 to uh, to, to the crowd of what's going on. He said, it is by faith in Jesus' name that this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name that the faith that comes through him has completely healed him, as you can all see. To Western minds, we don't often understand the power of names in everyday life. For first century hearers, though, they knew exactly what was going on. Names carry power. The invocation of hidden forces and summoning new possibilities beyond the realm of normal human ability. This man's healing is not only physical, but extends the righteousness and justice of God's character so that this once crippled man can participate fully in life with others. The name invoked by Peter and John to heal this 
beggar continues to work even in our lives today. We can ask things for things in Jesus' name, which means to ask for things according to God's character, all of his God's character, in our lives, but also in the world around us that is in desperate need for, for his name to be known. When we ask in Jesus' name, new things happen, just like it does for Peter and John. God's kingdom breaks into seemingly irreligious places, what we think are not religious at all. Jesus' name is what sets us free from finding meaning and significance through our religious acts. And Jesus' name draws us up and in to life with God in his kingdom. As you step through the threshold of this building, you're stepping across thresholds of religion and irreligion, of, of being up and in with the down and out, of being in God's kingdom and with the world around us. So as I invite you to consider, as you step through all these thresholds, that you don't forget what God has called you to. Submit yourself to Jesus' name and find yourself moving into and aware of those liminal places in the world around us where God is at work in the lives of people. Where there is brokenness and injustice, that is a space, a liminal space for God's kingdom to break in. And with the help of God's Spirit, may our lives be ever attentive to walking in that band, that sometimes very narrow band of that shore where God's kingdom is crashing in to the world that we live in. May we be faithful in bringing God's healing and God's justice and righteousness wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.